Good morning to you all. I'm Pastor Evan. Happy to be here and bring the word this morning. We are going to be in Matthew 6. If you have your Bible or mobile device, go ahead and get it out and you can follow along there. I'm going to jump to Exodus 20 again at some point, but at least you can have the Lord's Prayer before you this morning. As we've been uh, investigating the Lord's Prayer, we're now in week two. We're now actually in the season of Lent. We got our running start last week. Ash Wednesday happened. That kicks off Lent. This season of preparation as we walk towards Easter Sunday. Um, And we've been asking the question in the series, what happens when you pray the Lord's Prayer? And there are three primary contentions that we have. Other things could indeed happen, but these are the three primary contentions we have. One, you're going to pray like Jesus. Two, your heart is going to be transformed or is going to take on the heart of God. You'll understand God's heart. And three, you'll be transformed because of those things. That's what can happen as you pray the Lord's Prayer. And what I want to make sure we focus on in this series is we want to understand the Lord's Prayer in the totality and whole of Scripture, all that God's given us as His revealed Word, But one of the important things to me is that we can pray it in simplicity and for transformation at the same time. And I think the tools that we need to do that are frankly right there in places like Matthew and Mark and Luke and John in order to understand what Jesus is saying as he prays the prayer. So we'll use throughout the series other parts of Scripture, but I want to hang close to Matthew as much as possible in that because I think that we should be able to pray the Lord's Prayer without holding a commentary in our hand I think we should be able to pray the Lord's Prayer and have it transform us without having a bookshelf full of books about it or an advanced degree in it because I think Jesus has given us something accessible to take on the heart of God and to be transformed. And the more we understand what Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer and the more we understand what Jesus says about the kingdom and everything else that Jesus talks about, the more we can pray with depth and be transformed. And so I want to begin today, as we did last week, by praying the Lord's Prayer together. We're going to pray it out of last week's NIV. This week it'll be the Good News Translation, which was a translation produced a few decades ago that um, had as one of the major emphasis uh, people with English as a second language. All the English translations have a different thing they're trying to get at. So with the Lord's Prayer, you could read it in six different translations. You're not going to see that much difference frankly, but I think it's important that where we see the little, little nuances, we can actually gain some knowledge. So I would ask, stand as you're able. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together as we begin. It'll be on the screen. Remember to stop where the text stops and don't keep going on. Here we go. Our Father in heaven, may your holy name be honored. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need. Forgive us the wrongs we have done as we forgive the wrongs that others have done to us. Do not bring us to hard testing, but keep us safe from the evil one. Amen. Let's be seated. Today we have in mind uh, the hallowed be portion. Hallowed be the name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven. There's no way we can get through the fullness of that this morning. We're going to focus our efforts on hallowed be, and we're going to move into kingdom come as a practical implication of that. 
But I want to focus on the, the issue of hallowed be your name. And I want to focus on holiness, particularly the experience of holiness, and ask the question, does your life reflect God's holiness? Which is a perfectly legitimate question to ask if we're people who follow Jesus Christ. That's uh, uh, something that's written in Scripture from beginning to end, that we are to be holy as God is holy, so does your life reflect God's holiness? Let's begin by saying, asking the question, what is holy then? What is a holy thing? And what is the experience of holiness like? Uh, a friend of mine who's a covenant pastor was telling me recently about her trip to England, and uh, she had gotten a call from a friend to go over to England, and uh, by the way, this trip will inv involve meeting the queen. Big deal. So it was interesting to hear the story of what kind of shoes do you wear to go meet the queen, and how do you dress for this, and how do you wear, it was really actually quite practical, how, it's going to be rainy weather, so what kind of shoes do I wear that are practical for the weather and for the queen? So it's a very interesting story, it's wonderful to, to hear, but you do have to do a little advanced research then if you're going to go meet the queen, especially for us from this side of the, uh, the pond, we don't know what the decorum and the etiquette and all that, so she had to learn the etiquette. Then you go over there, they give you a little training too on site to make sure you do it right and don't do the wrong things. And so she met the queen. There's something about uh, holiness and the experience of holiness in an, in an example like that, in that there's a sense of decorum, right? And there's a sense of standards that come with that. I'm not at all comparing the queen to God, by the way, in this example, so don't worry about that. But, but holiness is that which is something that's holy, is something set apart, something that's pure, something that's, that's uh, in, in the case of God and God's holiness, not a created thing, other than the creation. But the important thing that we want to understand why I bring up the standards and decorum is, is that holiness functionally is like the definition of a word. Right? If I use a, a word particularly, and that word has a definition, we all know the definition, sometimes we misuse words, and someone says, oh, I don't think you mean that word, you mean something else. Why? Because the word has a definition. There's a standard by which we define the word. Now, of course, with words, the standards can change. That's not the way with holiness. But we get the idea. Or perhaps try this on. If I go out and buy a tape measure or grab one from the drawer in my office and somebody comes with another tape measure, they're pretty much going to match up, right? Because we have a standard. The inch I use is the same inch that any of you are going to use. It's a set thing that we have. So we're going to know when we measure an inch or five inches or a foot or whatever it is, the same measurement is going to be the same for both of us. That's the standard. Simple enough. That's what holiness really functionally works out to be. It sets the standard. If God is holy, God sets the standard by which everything else ought to be holy, and anything that is unholy is anything that's not that standard. It's, it's that which is secular or underneath that. God is holy in character, we can recognize, and the way that uh, primary ways that holiness could be uh, understood are God's omnipotence, eternity, and glory. Uh, so that God's all-powerful, God has no beginning and ending, and, and God's radiance kind of goes everywhere. But, but the experience part of that, how do we experience God's holiness? First and foremost, I want to suggest that those things seem like they're far off to us. The experience of God should be awe. We should be awed by God. And frankly, one of our most useful terms to talk about that, we've dumbed down so much and overused that we don't even have the language anymore. Everything is awesome. Anybody seen the Lego movie, right? We've dumbed down the word so much. 
and that song actually reflects it even more so, that everything is awesome. So how many things are actually awesome? Nothing in the end, if everything's awesome. We've, we've dumbed down the word so much. An experience of God's holiness should evoke awe out of us first and foremost. And we can have experience of, of sort of things that are sacred or for sacred use that would uh, kind of evoke, maybe not awe, but a special sense in us in our everyday lives. Let's take a church example of something that we'd call holy, maybe. We celebrate Holy Communion, and when we do that, we have uh, up, ab- up in front the bread and the cup. I have a set in my office. There's a set in the, uh, the parlor kitchen of an actual plate and a cup and a pitcher set aside for Holy Communion. There's not a day that goes by that I ever think to myself, sitting in my office during Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or something like that, and I brought my lunch, and I think, you know, today would be a great day that this sandwich would go well in the communion set. It never occurs to me. Why? Because it's set apart for some other purpose. It's a holy thing. Now, it's not holy like God is holy, but we've set it apart. I can't, I don't, wouldn't use that sacred item for sacrilegious purposes like that. We can, we can understand the holy sacred items. We can understand sacred relationships. Matrimony. What's the word associated with the beginning of that? Holy matrimony. Why? It's a relationship set apart from all other relationships. I'm married to my wife. We don't get to date. Why? We've set this relationship apart from all other relationships. To do that is to make it, is to, sacri- to, to mess up the holiness of it. It's got a purpose. It's got a function being set apart. We read in the Old Testament, God and Israel, that's represented in marriage. Jesus and his church, we see that in marriage as well. We're, we're actually reflecting some bigger kingdom reality in a sacred relationship. And fidelity matters in an earthly relationship just like it matters in our heavenly relationship. It's holy. It's set apart. We can't break that. We can understand spaces that are sacred, perhaps, or that are set apart. I have a number of books in my office that I inherited from my grandfather, who was a covenant pastor for decades. Uh, Many of them have smoke damage on them because one of the final churches that he served burned. And the book survived, but the church didn't survive. He said there was nothing worse than watching a church burn down. It's an awful feeling. Sacred spaces. We get these kind of ideas. We understand sacred items or sacred relationships or sacred spaces, those things that are holy. And so when we come to the Lord's Prayer, we say, hallowed be thy name. Sacred be your name. Holy be your name. And we even read this morning the Ten Commandments. We did it on purpose for a couple reasons, but one of them is you hear the third commandment, do not use the Lord's name in vain, Here's the thing about it. We actually don't even know the Lord's name. If you ever have somebody come and knock on your door and say, I know God's name from another religious group, they don't. We don't know God's actual name. God gives us titles and characteristics, and the closest thing we have is is the one given to Moses, Yahweh, I am, which I believe we can use based on that text, but we have to handle it correctly. But God didn't really even give us the full name. To give us the full name is to know the power or to know uh, things that we just can't know about God. We can't even handle it correctly. And even the ones that we have, we don't always handle correctly. Don't use my name in vain, it says. In fact, the 
in the, the world of the Old Testament, the days before Jesus, they put in uh, certain, uh, boy, the word's escaping me, protections, that's the word I want, in the text, so that they wouldn't even say that Yahweh name out loud and protect the holiness and sanctity of God's name. Imagine if they're reading about Moses being at the burning bush and, and said, Moses, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. See, you heard the space there. They would have just stopped. Space. Don't say it. You'll see this represented sometimes the, for people representing the sacredness of God's name, even in, in evangelical circles, where sometimes people put G-D when they write God occasionally to kind of do the same sort of thing. We can't even handle God's name correctly. We're not, we need to be careful with it. Hallowed be your name. The holiness of God's name, God's kingdom, all of that uh, is put in perspective. And sometimes we can reduce uh, the holiness of, of all of this by simply uh, making this a personal salvation issue like we've always done, because I think one of the important things that's reflected in the Lord's Prayer, not simply in name, and in kingdom, uh, and in will, is the word your. One of the, I, I have, as I've been studying the Lord's Prayer, I've been reflecting on, uh, I learned it, thy and thine, which I have always liked very much, but I'm intrigued by the fact that that elevates, I think, for a lot of us, the holiness of God, but we live in a culture that's so into personal and individual everything that we do that with our salvation, and sometimes we miss who's the holiness by whose benefit it's for. So thy and thine is not words that we use in everyday language. You and your is. And when we, when we read it in a, a modern translation with you and your, it brings out whose kingdom, whose name, whose will that we sometimes, I think, miss because we don't use that thy language in everyday language. If you read it, in, in the Greek, it's very clear. Your name, your will, your kingdom. It's decisive. And we need to be uh, that clear on it, too. So if God is holy, if it's your kingdom, if it's your name, your will, if it's holy, what now? What do we do with that information? If we go back to Exodus, it'll come up on the screen. Exodus 20, 18 and 19. The people, after the Ten Commandments are given, they see this, the sound, hear the sound of God, they see the sights of God, they're awestruck. Verse 18 it says, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. The people do have a fear for God here. And it's interesting how the text even uses that a little further in a moment. Uh, when Moses speaks, we heard that this morning, they fear the Lord, but it's not the appropriate kind of fear they're supposed to have. It's scared fear. It's what I'd call an unhealthy reverence that they have for God. They, they get conceptually that God is something other, 
that God is powerful, that omnipotence piece probably comes across really strong. But they want nothing to do with God. They stand in fear of God. But I think one of the things that we can see in the text is that God's omnipotence, God's powerfulness is all there, but God's personal nature is clear in the text too. How do we see that? He's giving the law. He's giving the law to a person. He's giving his holiness how to live it out in everyday life. He's starting from ground zero to teach them that. He's reaching out and he's teaching them how to walk with a holy God. One of the early church fathers, St. Cyprian, lived in the 200s AD, says, We pray, hallowed be thy name. Not that we wish that God may be made holy by our prayers, but that his name may be hallowed in us. Nothing we do makes God holy. God is holy. God is the standard. God is is the thing that should evoke awe out of us because God is. But God's holiness working through us who, who have been redeemed by the Son and then have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us God's holiness should work out in us. And that's how the your kingdom come starts to happen. Jesus came, inaugurated this kingdom, started it. And then those of us who are redeemed and reconciled with God can then walk in holiness and live out that hallowed be thy name in our lives. We have to rightly understand, if we're going to live out that kingdom life, we have to rightly understand holiness because it sets the standard and the hope by which we live then. By which we live out in the, in the kingdom life, even when the world's not working at kingdom pace. So we can see, if we go back to the idea of the law, the Old Testament law, Ten Commandments and beyond, we can recognize something important about holiness lived out. The Old Testament law taught that, the, it taught the standard by the law. This is what ground-level holiness looks like. So if you were to just, right now, open your Bible up and point to anywhere in Leviticus, you're going to get an idea of ground-level holiness and what it's supposed to look like. What does it look like to be a holy people and live that out? Uh, Exodus 19, I opened up to this week, you can see something like the misuse of truth. Immediately, don't lie. Why? God is truth. And we're not living... Uh, next to that holy standard, if we tell something other than the truth. It's pretty simple, actually, when you get down to it. If God is true, his people need to live that way, and in truth. You could take that further. Uh, you know, there's uh, commands against not slandering somebody, which I think is a particularly awful thing to do to a person, to misuse their name and their reputation. What is that? That's just the lie taken to the next level. Now you've not only not lived by the truth and walking with a God who is the truth, but now you're also desecrating somebody created in his image at the same time. You're doing two wrong, thing, wrong things, and pretty big wrong things. So the law taught the standard. Hey, if you want to know how to walk with the Holy God and what holiness looks like in practical life, here you go. All 600-some pieces of the law. This will help you figure it out. The law also taught that we as humans are not capable of keeping that standard. Translation, we're not holy. We're really not. We're not holy people. If you read through the rest of the story of the Old Testament after Leviticus, you can get this before too, but after the law is given, 
Do you know what some of the people did in the Old Testament? Some, it says, don't defraud your neighbor in Leviticus. Did you know some people did that in the Old Testament? It says in Leviticus, um, don't steal. You know some people did that in the Old Testament? It says in Leviticus, don't hate your neighbor. There were a few people that did that in the Old Testament. It says in the law, don't show favoritism to the poor or to the rich. Do we think they did that in the Old Testament? Yeah, they did. It says don't worship other gods or idols, which simply means false. Did they do that in the Old Testament? Yeah, they did. They broke the law all over the place. They couldn't keep it. Standard is set. This is holiness in practice. They couldn't do it. it. It taught us. And Paul makes this argument in the book of Romans. He makes it in Romans 2 and beyond that we couldn't keep the law. We thought we could, but we're just, we're not holy in and of ourselves. The sinful nature is too strong in us, and we're not God. We need God's power in us to become holy. That's the only way it happens. Paul in Romans verse, chapter 3, verse 23, very familiar passage to many of us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us are holy. He goes on and he says, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. When we understand holiness, we can understand the standards and the hope, we can understand that we can't achieve those without the grace of God through Jesus Christ given to us and even further the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. So what happens when you pray the Lord's Prayer? Once you've recognized that, once you've, started, once you've yielded to Jesus Christ then and his work, and you pray the Lord's Prayer so that you can actually be transformed to have the heart of God, you begin to reflect God's holiness. That's what can happen once we've yielded over to that. New uh, biblical scholar N.T. Wright says, What God did for Jesus on the first Easter day, he has promised to do for each one of us who is in Christ, each one who is indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. So we, get a, we not only get the one who made it possible in Jesus Christ, but the one who shows us what it's like to then be holy. That's who we're supposed to be with, with all the hope that comes with that and the eventual resurrection that comes with that. See, we're incapable of being holy without the work of a holy God in us. And we're called into a deep and transformative relationship with God through Jesus Christ in order to accomplish this holiness. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. He didn't, get a, he didn't remove it. And by being reconciled with God through Jesus Christ and having the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we can then be made holy. We can be transformed from the inside out. That's the beginning of a kingdom life. That your kingdom come, your will will be done, begins simply by living out hallowed be your name, first and foremost. We should recognize the danger that's out there then as we start to live this way there's always the danger that if we're trying to live kingdom lives, there are rival kingdoms all around us trying to take us away from that kingdom life. So we read the parable of the wheat and the weeds this morning from Matthew 13, uh, a parable that I think makes very clear uh, the world around us that God's called us to be holy, but there's a whole lot of unholiness around us still until that final day until God makes everything right, until the final consummation of all things. And if you've ever uh, grown anything in a garden, 
In fact, uh, when the snow eventually melts in like July, we'll start to see as, the, as plants start to grow up. I know I'll have volunteer plants in my garden. I'll have weeds too. You know what they're going to look like when they first start growing? Exactly the same for the most part until they start to kind of get a little more distinction after those first false leaves are there. But you start to see a difference over time. We hear that parable that, that the sower sowed the wheat in the field, those who are kingdom people, essentially, and that then the, uh, the evil one comes and sows the weeds, and they look a lot alike for a while. Those rival kingdoms are very deceiving. Sometimes they're obviously wrong, sometimes they're deceivingly wrong. We think they look pretty good, actually. And if you're one who has been reconciled with God through Jesus Christ, you've been redeemed, then consider yourself wheat in a field of weeds. You're a disciple, but recognize that weeds abound, and they'll try and steal the resources, and they'll try and take you down. They'll try and turn you into wheat, essentially. So we see these king, rival kingdoms around. We see rival kingdoms where race is how we define things. Still a big problem. We see rival kingdoms where the opposite is happening, where we're trying to turn it upside down to uh, kind of overcompensate for that problem. We see rival kingdoms where we sometimes believe that politicians have all the answers and the right laws will give us the right things and, and the right morality and those kinds of things. Politics, fine. Laws, fine. But they're not a hope. We, we have rival kingdoms where we think perhaps science will solve everything. Science is great. But it won't solve everything. It has its limitations like everything else, like philosophy and theology and everything. We have rival kingdoms where we can buy our happiness, where we can experience our happiness. Constantly things trying to take away those resources that would be in awe of God and pull us away to rival kingdoms and give us a different hope and take away uh, and, and give us different standards that aren't God's standards constantly. And so the question is, is reflected back to us. Does your life reflect God's holiness? I'm going to invite the band to come on up. I have two simple thoughts as we close this out. Um, I really, this, this week was really reflective and fun for me as I worked through uh, holiness, but it's one of those that's such a big topic. I hope we've done some justice to it. Um, I reflect on it an awful lot, but if we're going to live those holy lives, first of all, if you don't know Jesus Christ, then that's the starting point. And if you're in that position, there's a little card in your, your pew there. Check it off. Come talk to me afterwards. Let's, let's get a start today. Because it doesn't start until that's started, until we have that relationship with Jesus Christ established and he begins to work in us. But if Jesus has taken a hold in you and started to work, then one of the things that for wheat growing in the field of weeds, is we've got to be on constant guard to make sure that those rival kingdoms aren't setting up shop in our lives. Idols. That's the simple way of putting what they are. Because if we don't uh, take care of, of the garden, basically, we're going to give in to those temptations regularly, and we're going to miss what God has before us. We're going to have the wrong hope. The best way to gauge that is time and money. Where do those things go? Particularly time. Where does all my time go? If you have a bulk of time that's going to things uh, that, are, that are starting to establish your hope somewhere else, um, if you're living in fear of missing out or all these different things that we have, then you might have rival kingdoms setting up shop. 
We have to be vigilant about that. But the other thing that I would suggest is to find ways, experiences, to be awed by God this week. To truly be awed by God. To posture your heart towards God. So we've offered to pray the Lord's Prayer. Memorize it. Pray it. Pray it regularly. Pray it daily. Pray it multiple times a day. And as you do, I'm actually going to suggest that one way, one method you might find useful, if we can have the next slide, is actually just take time to sit for a week on each of the phrases. So Monday, pray our Father in heaven. Stop. And take time to chart in, how is God my Father, and how am I a faithful child of him, or an unfaithful child? And use that as your prayer. Tuesday, hallowed be your name. How am I experiencing God's holiness? How am I awed by God today? And how am I being faithful by being holy today? How am I drawing close to the one who can make me holy? And setting up things in my life that draw me to that holiness. And, and you can go on. You, you can see the slide. Maybe we'll post it afterwards. But you can just go on. You don't have to be so prescriptive. You can do it however you want. But you might find it illuminating to take a day to pray each one of these parts. Find experiences that are going to awe you in God's presence. I know the one experience I had this week uh, before we go to our final song that, that awed me was our Ash Wednesday service. Because here we have a time when we uh, reflect on our mortality, we reflect on who God is. God uh, is, we aren't. We have a beginning and an ending. Our salvation is found in Jesus Christ only because God wanted to give us that. But one of the remarkable things where I could experience God's holiness uh, that was unique in this experience for me, I guess, is that as pastor, I happen to be standing in this line, Pastor Jody's here, and we mark the forehead uh, from uh, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, or dust you are, and to dust you shall return, reflecting on our mortality. And here comes father-in-law, mother-in-law, dad, mom, wife, oldest, youngest, and then the one that always gets me is middle, because we've been close to losing her. And here God's given me the gift. God's given me life. And God's granted me these gifts that are remarkable. The reflection of God's glory. We need experiences like that where we're awed by God. Let's pray. I'm going to use a prayer from A.W. Tozer. O majesty unspeakable, my soul desires to behold you. I cry to you from the dust. Yet when I inquire after your name, it is secret. You are hidden in the light which no one can approach. What you are cannot be thought or uttered, for your glory is ineffable. Still prophet and psalmist, apostle and saint have encouraged me to believe that I may in some measure know you. Therefore, I pray, whatever of yourself you have been pleased to disclose, help me to search out as treasure more precious than rubies or the merchandise of fine gold. For with you shall I live when the stars of the twilights are no more and the heavens have vanished away and only you remain. Amen.